0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man
2: with a gun over there. These are attempts to bail out the speculators themselves. And all I can say is there must be not one penny of public money used to prop up any of these financial bubbles. Because it is impossible. We can take a look at uh, Chase Manhattan, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Citibank. Officially, in terms of what they've declared to the controller of the currency, they have 110 trillion dollars of derivatives between them. And in reality, it's a multiple. Now, let's say it's twice, 200 trillion of derivatives. How can you bail that out? Remember, the whole U.S. federal budget is now is what is 12 trillion, 13 trillion. There's not enough money in the universe. Remember the the definition of a black hole is it's a kind of a gravity field where no matter how much matter goes in, it'll still be a black hole. In other words, you could feed the whole universe into a black hole, and it would simply make the black hole more uh, more powerful.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show: the U.S. banking system, too big to bail out. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian author and lecturer. He is author of Surviving the Cataclysm, a study of the world financial crisis, your guide through the greatest financial crisis in human history. Surviving the Cataclysm was published in 1999 and was followed immediately by the dot-com bubble and then by the housing bubble. We are now at the end of the housing bubble. In 1992, Tarpley co-authored George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, which still stands as the only comprehensive and critical account of the former president and his family network. Tarpley is also author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and Against Oligarchy. He has just written a new article, Helicopter Ben Unleashes Hyperinflation. Webster Tarpley, welcome again.
2: Thank you very much. It's good to be here.
0: We've had a lot of uh, stock market volatility lately, uh, multiple 100-point drops and recoveries, etc. Now, uh, I have just finished reading a new paper that you've written, a 17-page paper entitled Helicopter Ben Unleashes Dollar Hyperinflation. Who is Ben and why is he called Helicopter Ben? <laughs>
2: Well, Helicopter Ben is Ben Bernanke, and he is the current chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System in Washington, D.C., and uh, he is, therefore, a powerful uh, finance oligarch, a former professor at Princeton and former governor of the Federal Reserve before he became the chairman of the Board of Governors. And he's known as Helicopter Ben because of a speech that he gave some years ago where, uh, even though Bernanke himself is, I think, a monetarist and perhaps to some degree a supply-sider. He argued a quasi-Keynesian thesis where he said uh, if there were an economic depression today that uh, it, it would be clear how to stop it. He said we could simply load bales of dollar bills into helicopters, fly around, drop the bales on people's lawns. Then they would scoop up the dollar bills. They would run to the store and buy things. And this would provide stimulus, and this would this would get you out of a depression. So ever since then, he's been known as Helicopter Ben. And I think it is important, because what it shows is a very serious lack of reality in his thinking. Because what he's really arguing is to say that if you dump liquidity, if you flood the system with liquidity, as they say these days, or if you inject huge amounts of cash into the banking system... That that will lead to an economic recovery, and I'm afraid, as they're finding, it won't. Uh, but it's going to take a very long time for them to understand that. And in effect, before they realize what they're doing, we're going to have hyperinflation. So let me just state my my thesis in a, in a nutshell. What we have had now during the month of August 2007. It, it really started a little bit earlier in, in the acute uh, crisis phase. It probably started around the middle of June when a couple of hedge funds associated with the Bear Stearns Investment Bank blew up and went to zero cents on the dollar in each case. And then it percolated during July, and at the end of July it exploded, and we've now had a very, very dramatic month of economic crisis during uh, August 2007. What this indicates is a crisis of the world banking system. It is a world banking panic in a world credit market panic. And it has absolutely the potential to cause a systemic crisis, that is, to blow up the entire globalized economic system, or as I have to call it, the globalony system, uh, which has been the, the reigning um, structure of the world since about 1990, since the end of the Cold War, approximately. And we have now gone through a phase change of that system such that today just about every bank in the world is now technically bankrupt and a ward of its respective central bank. And this has been signaled by the massive injections of money, approximately one half trillion US dollars injected by central banks uh, during the second half of August that we know about, plus untold billions and and hundreds of billions that we don't know about so there's a tremendous support operation going on there but the problem is that all of that money being injected is not going to solve the fundamental bankruptcy of the system the bankruptcy includes things like subprime mortgages other mortgages junk bonds commercial paper collateralized debt obligations mortgage-backed securities asset-backed commercial paper repo agreements, repurchase agreements, and and warehouse loans and other expedients that businesses have used. All of this is now bankrupt. The world credit markets are in a process of disintegration. It's not just a stock market collapse, however interesting and dramatic that may be, but it is a disintegration of credit markets where the markets themselves seize up and cease to function. Uh, And uh, this, I'm afraid, is going to lead To these central banks, given their overwhelmingly hyperinflationary uh, mentality, as we see in this nickname, Helicopter Ben, I think that before too long it's going to be clear that if if these policies continue, we will be in hyperinflation. That is to say, we will be in a situation more and more comparable to what certain third-world countries have gone through. Um, Russia, for example, in the early 1990s got up to an inflation rate of about 1,500 percent per year. And we may even get into the area of challenging the German hyperinflation of 1923, which was a factor of one trillion, from four marks to a dollar to four trillion German marks to a dollar, or even the most extreme case, the Hungarian Pengo of the early 1940s, a a devaluation by a factor of one nonillion—that is, a one followed by thirty zeros—those are some of the things that we have in the history of of hyperinflation. So it is a total crisis of this system. It has been masked by central bank intervention, by the intervention of something called the plunge protection team, which holds up the uh, financial markets. It prevents a panic from breaking out in the in the Wall Street uh, stock market, in particular. And it's been masked by decades of ignorance and decades and decades of, of just systematic uh, lying. And I think we can, we can look for the symptoms of this to become more and more evident as we go along. Now, that's sort of the thesis, and I'm sure some of that must be relatively obscure. So
0: It sounds to me like Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke is living up to his name, Helicopter Ben. Would you say so?
2: Yes, although he's he's trying to do it, he's trying to keep up uh, appearances. Um, there's a tremendous amount of hatred of Bernanke in Wall Street right now, because what Wall Street wanted was for Bernanke to do what, what Greenspan uh, demonstrably did. His His predecessor as the head of the Board of Governors at the Federal Reserve System was Greenspan, otherwise known as Bubbles. Greenspan, because he could always pull another bubble out of his hat to uh, to keep things going. Whenever a hedge fund was bankrupt uh, under Greenspan, uh, he would basically take care of it silently. I'm sure there are a lot of them that we don't even know about. But when, in particular, ten years ago, well, nine years ago this summer, long-term capital management, a hedge fund in Connecticut, uh, blew up and blew a hole of several hundred billion in the world banking system. Greenspan was there immediately with a backdoor bailout with crony capitalism. It probably helped that one of the members of the long-term capital management board was also somebody who had been on the Federal Reserve Board at various times. So they simply rushed in. Again, they flooded the system with money. They kept it quiet. They didn't allow anything to unravel. And uh, this was just silently wrapped up, and b- within a couple of weeks, things were back to some semblance of normalcy, although the the, uh, the economic results in the third world were absolutely uh, devastating. There was something like uh, half a billion people went from having an income of $2 a day back down to having an income of $1 a day, according to United Nations figures, or something along those those lines. So what what Wall Street wanted from Bernanke was when... These Bear Stearns hedge funds blew up in the middle of June. They wanted Bernanke to come in and silently take care of it. And this this became a matter of public record on August 3rd, when we had a controlled psychotic episode by a character named Jim Cramer, who is the dominant personality of the CNBC cable television Financial News Network, who, again, in the psychotic episode that was under control, however, that afternoon, he screamed that Bernanke was an ivory tower academic, that he didn't know anything, that he needed to get on the phone with Bear Stearns and Goldman Sachs, find out how bad it is, find out that it was financial Armageddon, and then flood the system with money and radically lower the interest rates charged by the Federal Reserve. And that comes down then to the discount rate, which is where troubled banks can go to borrow, and the federal funds rate, which is the interbank lending uh, rate, which is it's adjusted by the Federal Reserve through what they call open market operations, through buying and selling of Treasury securities, so that they can, they can sort of tinker with the amount of money that's around. So when the banks have to settle every night and meet their reserve ratios, the Fed uh, at this point wants that to be at 5.25%. So this was the big, the big explosion on, on August 3rd from, from Kramer. About a week later, on August 10th, Bernanke began publicly injecting money. He put out a communique saying, we are going to provide liquidity for the orderly functioning of these markets. And he put in a first uh, spritz of about $40 billion at a time when the European Central Bank was injecting something like $220 billion. Uh, dollars and the equivalent of of euros. And then when that didn't work and the turbulence continued uh, on the morning of August 17th, Bernanke then came in and lowered the discount rate from six and a quarter to five and three quarters. And this is where troubled banks traditionally have gone to get money to prevent themselves from going bankrupt. And now what has happened is you've got Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, Citibank, J.P. Morgan Chase, the biggest banks in the world, lining up at the discount window of the Federal Reserve and borrowing. And what they are allowed to pledge as collateral, what they have to put up to get these loans, is toxic, bankrupt, mortgage-backed securities paper. Uh, so this is a, an un- unprecedented situation. Now, in the past week, since the 17th, Uh, things have calmed down a little bit, but this is now a fool's paradise because what this uh, damage has done is just uh, enormous. Um, Back nine years ago, it was just one hedge fund that was known at least to have blown up. That was long-term capital management, and that was enough by itself to bring the entire system to the verge of of a breakdown crisis and an explosion. This time, it's not one hedge fund, but it's, Forty to fifty similar institutions, and um, some of them are banks. uh, In particular, just to to tick off a few examples, so you get an idea also of how how pervasive this is. These are this is a list that I have here in my um, my uh, essay. There are three hedge funds associated with Bear Stearns that have blown up. There are three hedge funds associated with. BNP Paribas—that's Banque Nationale de Paris Paribas—they've blown up. There were two from Goldman Sachs. There's the SoWood hedge fund, the Renaissance Fund, the Luminant Fund, Westdeutsche Landesbank. One hedge fund has blown up. IKB Industrie Bank of Germany uh, on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, countrywide Mortgage deeply troubled. American Home Mortgage has blown. Um, Lehman Brothers has announced the closing of one hedge fund associated with them. The Man Group, the biggest group of publicly traded hedge funds in Great Britain, they've blown up. The Bank of England has intervened to bail out a commercial bank in, in Britain to the tune of something like $300 million. And I think the most dramatic, interestingly enough, the most dramatic results of this so far is in Germany. There's a, a, a bank called the the Landesbank Sachsen and that would be the the state bank of the German federal state of Saxony and of course this is privatized so it's not it's not what it sounds like it's a it's sort of a pirate institution and they've had two hedge funds blow up one of them in Ireland and then one other and this Saxony Landesbank has been bailed out by the European Central Bank to the tune of about 30 billion euros And it's still in trouble. In other words, the crisis of the sachsen Landesbank is still going on, which has led now to rumors that the entire banking system of the Federal Republic of Germany is in trouble, that nobody will lend to them. Uh, And this is simply huge, because that is the economic heart of Europe in terms of real economics. I mean, London, naturally the financial capital, but in terms of a country that still produces some useful... Products that still has some kind of an industrial base and some workers working in factories. Well, that would be Germany, and this is now in danger of, of coming down. It's also important because if you think about the the crisis of the 1930s, um, in 1931 in particular, it was banks in Central Europe, the the Creditanstalt of Vienna and the Donat Bank of Germany. When those blew up, that was then the signal that the world depression was going to take a very, very ugly turn and become a 10-year-long calvary of of absolute uh, destruction and and suffering for the entire world, essentially bringing down the entire world monetary system. So this stuff is uh, extremely serious. Um, The last two Fridays, on August 10th and August 17th, it was clear that without uh, emergency intervention by the Federal Reserve... The New York stock market was going to take a dive in the area of 1,000 to 2,000 points. Spread panic. Make people aware that their entire um, retirement savings, their 401ks, their IRAs, were desperately threatened. Uh, and that, that of course, would have caused the political crisis. So the, that the political side of the crisis has been papered over, quite frankly, because most people do not understand. How absolutely grave and serious the current situation is, and as long as the stock market seems to be more or less at a normal level, they don't really ask too many more questions. But the the underground damage, the devastation in the banking system, the bond market, which is much more important in the to the system than the, than the stock market, all of this is is just uh, enormous, and we've we've really gone through a watershed. In other words, this has been a great watershed of world economic history, because we're now in a phase where, I think from a technical point of view, the entire world system is bankrupt, and the bankruptcy is simply being masked by these infusions of cash, which will have the effect of, uh, of, of causing hyperinflation.
0: I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The U.S. Banking System, Too Big to Bail Out. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: Now, maybe we ought to talk about hyperinflation for a second, since I've, I've mentioned this, and this may not be clear to people. Would that be a good idea?
0: Uh, yes, let's talk about hyperinflation and also at the same time. Now, obviously, uh, Wall Street has been screaming for a bailout, and they've right. been getting one. And they're getting
2: one, sure. They're not getting everything they wanted. What they want and this is another aspect to it, this is another way we get to hyperinflation, is that so far we've had these infusions, again, worldwide, it's at least half a trillion dollars. So the the world money supply has jumped by half a trillion dollars in about two weeks since about the 15th of of August, or the the 16th, actually, to be precise. Uh, But then there's something more. They want, the Wall Street people are now screaming for the interbank lending rate, the so-called federal funds rate in this country, to be reduced. It's currently at 5.25, and they're demanding that Bernanke and these others take steps to flood the system with even more money so that this bank rate will decline. Now, it has declined on some days. Some days already, the, the interbank lending rate has gone down to, to 5 or 4.75. I've even seen reports that on some days it was de facto zero, because so much money had been thrown in uh, using the methods. But what they want is, uh, is to make this official, Now, if this happens, you have to remember that the dollar is a profoundly sick and weak currency. Uh, If you lower the interest rate in this country on the uh, federal funds, the interbank lending rate, you're going to see hundreds of billions of dollars of hot money fly out of the United States and into some place where the interest rates are higher. Right now, that would be London. It might be Canada. It might be Australia. The British and their group of of, uh, client states have generally kept their interest rates higher, and they seem to be determined to raise them even more. The Japanese central bank this past week met, and they were supposed to raise their interest rates from one-half of 1% to three-quarters of 1%, but out of regard for the United States also, because undoubtedly they were were arm-twisted, they did not raise their uh, interest rates and that relieves a little pressure on the dollar because if interest rates are higher someplace else then the hot money would leave the u.s. and and go there but the if you look at the dollar euro quotation you'll see that the dollar has the dollar has lost uh, about one and a quarter one and a half cents against the euro just in the last couple of days and uh, when this crisis started we had the dollar at an all-time low against the euro a 25-year low against the British pound, a 25-year low against the Canadian dollar, and so on down the line. So the dollar is extremely weak. And if Bernanke is forced by the screaming of these Wall Street uh, sharks and hyenas to lower the interest rate further, the dollar will literally go through the floor. You might even get what I call Volcker's nightmare. Volcker's nightmare is a uh, situation where a dollar slide begins And then there's no way to stop it, that you can't put on the brakes. It's like having an 18-wheeler go down the side of a mountain. There's just no way that it can be stopped once a certain momentum is attained. And we may see that. And the dollar has the potential to slide down to one-third of its present value, one-fourth, one-fifth, one-tenth of the present value of the dollar, because, of course, there's nothing keeping the dollar up. There is no production, by and large, in the United States of use values that anybody would want to buy. The entire industrial economy has been completely ruined, and the mm, exports are mainly financial products, intellectual property, and then there is some food, right, some grain and some other things like this, but that's not enough to hold up the dollar. Remember, the U.S. is running a uh, merchandise trade deficit, which is at least $800 billion dollars and which is rapidly approaching 1 trillion dollars that's almost 3 billion dollars a day coming in more in terms of goods and services and products than ever goes out so and you have to remember now everything in this country is imported if the dollar crashes if the dollar goes way down all the prices and all all those imported commodities go up and this is a way to get to hyperinflation now let let's just look at the symptoms we can see already uh... let's look at food i would urge people to think about hyperinflation in terms of what you see when you go to the supermarket right now uh... and you can what i'm going to do is i'm going to have my own little hyperinflation index here to try to keep track of this because i think this is where it's going to become quite obvious let's take the price of milk about a year ago, milk was about 275 a gallon in many areas, and right now, milk seems to have gone up to about 375 in some areas, even $4. Uh, according to Labor Department projections, the price of a gallon of milk is likely to be $5 by the end of the year. Eggs, eggs are up 34% in the last 12 months. Eggs have gone up 7% just in the last single Month, the price of chicken, beef, veal, all of them sharply up. Poultry up eight percent in one year. Generally speaking, the across-the-board inflation rate for food is ten percent in the last twelve months. Now, what this means is when you look at the Labor Department Consumer Price Index, this is obviously faked. In other words, these are statistics that are cooked. Uh, you know, more than a boiled chicken would be cooked. They they cook it and massage it six ways to sunday so you cannot rely on those statistics but when you see the price of milk break five dollars on the upside this will be a sign of incipient uh, hyperinflation i would say the other thing is think of the price of cheese right the price of cheddar cheese has gone up by a uh, a very large amount so these are these are the indications so far food prices are up six percent in Two thousand and seven so we 're getting basically a one percent a month price increase on all food that would be a uh, again a current rate of about ten to twelve percent and now what 's for the
0: future well now wait a minute, Webster, let me ask you a question about yeah. that it 's obvious from what you have said that imports Will uh, become much more expensive as the dollar drops. Right. But now most of these food products that you've been mentioning—eggs, milk, chickens, etc.—that kind of stuff is raised domestically. Now a lot of it is,
2: but but maybe not as much as you think. <laughs> there, there's there's an unbelievably large amount that is imported. And now let's let's try to take care of this objection, which is germane. Um, here's what we have: Goldman Sachs, which is one of these uh, essentially technically insolvent uh, investment houses in, in Wall Street, they are recommending, are essentially saying, after the dot-com bubble of 1999 to 2002, after the housing bubble of 2003 until now, which is now ending, there's got to be another bubble. What will it be? Well, it's going to be commodities, and in the middle of commodities it's going to be food, So Goldman Sachs is touting, for their speculator clientele, speculating in agricultural commodities, sugar, corn, wheat, and coffee. Let me just say parenthetically, some try to explain a lot of this away with the ethanol, um, the use of corn for ethanol, which then, since it's a feedstock for poultry and livestock and so forth, it tends to raise prices. That's certainly a factor. But I think what we're going to see now is something that goes far beyond even the ethanol effect. Uh, according to Goldman Sachs, they say steel, iron ore, nickel may suffer, but bread and potatoes are going to be bought. These people talk about uh, the price of sugar doubling from ten cents a pound to twenty cents a pound. Speculation is rife in other agricultural commodities, and I think this this is going to be the the key to the entire thing. Now, you you probably noticed that that gasoline and oil prices have been down over the past couple of weeks this is simply because when hedge funds approach bankruptcy and again we've had several dozen hedge funds uh... going bankrupt and scores more getting close to bankruptcy and trying desperately to save themselves. They sell everything they have. They've sold gold futures. You will, you will have noticed on some of these crisis days, gold has been down $20, $25 an ounce. This doesn't mean that gold is a bad investment. It simply means that as hedge funds approach bankruptcy, they dump everything they have. They dump stocks. That's the, the stock market story is hedge funds near bankruptcy dumping stocks, dumping gold futures, and then dumping oil futures. Uh, oil prices have been down... 10% easily on, on some, some of these most recent days.
0: So, so are you saying then that oil prices have been inflated all along substantially by uh, the speculation in hedge funds?
2: Yes, that's, that's exactly the point that I'd, I want to make, is that when, I, I want you to think about hedge funds from two points of view. Hedge funds are institutions that need to be outlawed immediately. A hedge fund is an investment company With less than 100 investors, these are typically super fat cats who bring millions and billions to the table. Since they have less than 100 investors, they're not covered by the Securities and Exchange Commission regulations, weak as those have now become. They're absolutely unregulated. They fly beneath the radar of any regulator. They need to be outlawed. The way this has hit the average person The price of oil, if the oil price has averaged about $70 a barrel for the last year, I would estimate that approximately 40% of that price is pure hedge fund speculation. The fact that every barrel of oil is bought and sold 20, 50, 100 times over in futures, options, the forward market, the spot market, and all the rest of it, before that ever gets to the pump. It is not peak oil. As a matter of fact, I think you can, you can probably make the case that the hedge funds themselves have been the most enthusiastic supporters of peak oil, because it was an ideological cover for their machinations. In the German election campaign of Schroeder against Merkel a couple of years ago, Schroeder, unfortunately in a losing effort, made the point that at that time he thought at least $25 of the price of every barrel of oil was hedge fund speculation, and he asked for a mandate in that election to essentially regulate hedge funds, which means to, in effect, to, to wipe them out. If they were regulated, they wouldn't be hedge funds anymore, right? The whole idea of a hedge fund is that it's totally unregulated. So you have to imagine now that of the, of the gasoline price that you've been paying for the last two to three years, about half of that has flowed into the pockets of these hedge funds. And uh, there's actually, there is a hedge fund called the Raptor Fund. <laughs> and they're, in German, they're called the Locust Funds. You can imagine the Hyena Fund, the Jackal Fund, the Vulture Fund, the Lamprey Fund, the Leech Fund. Uh, they're absolutely parasitical creatures. And uh, they they make the crisis worse uh, as as they're in the process of going bankrupt. They engage in speculations which increase the general level of bankruptcy. I call it hedge fund fratricide. They've been, for example, hedge funds approaching bankruptcy have been buying yen and trying to ride the yen up as uh, as institutions try to pay back their yen loans, which is where, where a lot of these American banks have been borrowing money for the past four or five years under the so-called yen carry trade. So this was... One of the reasons that Bernanke had to step in, so to speak, on August 16th and 17th was to stop the hedge funds from uh, essentially wiping each other out, and also the fact that the hedge funds were shorting banks like Goldman Sachs and Bear Stearns that the Fed really has to protect, because they're some of the largest investment houses in, uh, in Wall Street. So the hedge fund is an absolutely destructive institution, which uh, simply has no place in any civilized um, scheme of, of of things. And, and in the past, they, they didn't exist. We got along very well without them.
0: Now, these are the very funds that Wall Street is screaming to have bailed out, aren't yes, they?
2: Yes, in effect. I mean, they're not, the, the Federal Reserve is not so much concerned about the hedge funds per se, but they're concerned about the fact that if enough hedge funds blow, then Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley and then JP Morgan Chase and Citibank and Bank of America they will all be gone. So
0: and that's it, because these banks have been lending the money to these funds that then they use to speculate with.
2: Precisely, and they do it uh, obviously using leverage uh, it, for for some of these people 500 to 1 leverage is a very poor effort, 1000 to 1 is acceptable and probably 1500 to 1 is optimal in other words for every dollar of, of money that you put up out of your own money you try to borrow fifteen hundred dollars more from various sources so that you can leverage a rising market which multiplies your profits the problem is what we've seen lately is reverse leverage when reverse leverage kicks in then, uh... the 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 losses of the things that are that are multiplied and and this is leading them to to bankruptcy they also engage in derivatives and this is true of all the banking system this is something again the average person may not be acquainted with but we have things like futures and options that are not based on any company or factory or plant or any commodity but really they are paper based on paper and as soon as you have futures and options these are traded in chicago and other things called structured notes you have an infinity of permutations and combinations of what these derivatives might look like and the long and the short of it is if you look at the world banking system we must have at least five hundred trillion dollars of derivatives and i have heard on cnbc from a fairly reliable man uh... an estimate that the world now has seven hundred and fifty trillion dollars of derivatives now i think Any estimate of the total value of planet Earth at this point could not be greater than, let's say, $50 trillion. I think that's the worth of everything in the world. And they've got derivatives that cover that ten times over. So you can see the problem is this incessant creation of paper capital, promises to pay, capitalist property titles and so forth, this immense edifice a financial house of cards built on a shrinking base in terms of real production and standards of living this is a, a recipe for for a catastrophic economic crisis and i'm afraid this is now what's upon us although when i say upon us the 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 wheels of these crises typically uh... go more slowly than is expected until they reach some point of inflection when they may indeed start to go uh, start to go faster
0: I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The U.S. Banking System, Too Big to Bail Out. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Webster, earlier you mentioned the uh, plunge protection team. Could you tell us who the plunge protection team is and how the plunge protection team inflates stock prices?
2: Yes, I I wrote about this. Uh, I have two books that I guess I'd like to mention. One is Surviving the Cataclysm, 1999. People can get this at my website, www.tarpley.net. This is a a book that was an orphan. It never found a paper publisher, but you can get it on disk, and I'll be glad to send it to you on a disk. So Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History, which came out a little bit less than nine years ago. In uh, January of 1999. But I also wrote about this in the unauthorized biography of George Bush. And I think the unauthorized biography of George Bush, 1992, has the first published description, at least in a book, of what is today called the Plunge Protection Team. And it's, it's this there was this guy called Nick Brady. He was Bush the Elder's Secretary of the Treasury later on. Still under Reagan in the, at the end of 1998. Uh, at the end of 1997, beginning of 1998, they did a study of the crash of 1987 and the relation between the stock market in New York and the options and futures markets in Chicago, right? Because there is this thing called the Chicago Board of Trade uh, and the Chicago Board Options Exchange and the Chicago Merck, right? These are a complex of institutions that functions in some kind of synergy with the underlying stock market the new york stock exchange on on wall street and they studied this relation and and they came up with the following system they said if we want to avoid a panic crash of the new york stock market what we need to do is to focus on the stock futures that are sold in chicago and what we need to do is inject money into those we need to buy stock futures in Chicago, and if we keep the price of the stock future in Chicago above the price of the corresponding stock in New York, the program trader, the index arbitrageur, as they're called, the speculator, will sell the future or avoid the future and buy the stock. And since the rules uh, in terms of the Securities and Exchange Commission on the Chicago side are laxer than they are for the stocks, we can use money, say $10 million in Chicago, to generate maybe $100 million of buying in New York, or maybe even more. And the money that they use is from the Federal Reserve. And this is now, there is no doubt about this. After 9-11, they came out and told everybody that this existed. The Washington Post, George Stephanopoulos on ABC News, they all came out and said, don't worry about your 401ks, folks, because we have the White House Working Group on Financial Markets, otherwise known as the Plunge Protection Team, or PPT. And they're intervening constantly. I mean, they obviously, they keep on the phone with the main speculators and program traders and all the rest of this. But what they do is, when you see some of these bizarre closings on Wall Street, if you see the Dow Jones Industrial Average go up 150 points in the last 30 minutes based on no news that is the hand of the ppt and what they're trying to do is simply to prop up the market obviously they want to avoid a market break they don't want to have a situation where there's no buy offer there's only sell orders building up uh, and generally they want to create the illusion of a functioning stock market because that is uh, part of the political system and they also uh, they would probably say today uh, unlike what they would have done you know, 10 years ago, they would probably argue that today what they're doing is wartime necessity. They'd say, well, there's the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, and therefore we have to keep these markets propped up, uh, and that's what we're doing. Generally speaking, the uh, commentators on Wall Street have forgotten that this was all revealed right after 9-11. Right after 9-11, they were all telling everybody it was there, so you should be reassured. And today they say, uh, bargain hunters appeared, or bottom fishers came in, or small investors made a stand. But this of course, quite fantastic. This is the PPT. And the interesting thing is that they're using your money, in effect. They're using the, the money of the private Federal Reserve, which nevertheless operates as a as a public uh, institution. So one of the implications for this, of course, is that the average person should not be in any of these markets, right, that you should minimize your exposure, that you should assume a strongly defensive position in all of this stuff. You don't want to rely on paper promises to pay anything, because none of these can be relied on in the in the coming uh, weeks, months, and years. What you have to do is own the use values that you need upon which your life depends you want to own a home own a car and own means own no mortgage no note no debt own a computer own the tools of your trade uh... education is always a wonderful investment because it can't be taken away uh... but you don't want to have debt and you don't want to be exposed to these paper markets now let me maybe get to uh... what to do about this because it is extremely uh, serious matter Now, i would say just in general the only way that uh, civilization is going to survive this kind of a crisis is a massive return to New Deal economics. Uh, and I'm, I'm afraid that the past 20 years, uh, the, the entire propaganda effort of Milton Friedman and the Chicago School, uh, which was, of course, put into action then under Pinochet in Chile, and then the Austrian school of von Mises and von Hayek von Hayek having been a, a paid propagandist for rent-gouging Viennese landlords back in the 1920s, and these doctrines put into action under Thatcher, and then to some extent under, uh, under Reagan, uh, people have lost touch with economic reality. In other words, we've had the monetarists, we've had the supply-siders running around. Even the Keynesians are, are not really reliable uh... In, in this kind of a crisis and what's been lost is, is the reality of the achievement of the new deal which was not was not uh... primarily even a top-down exercise but it was a series of of conquests by mass struggles the the san francisco general strike the minneapolis general strike the great sit-down strikes in detroit the foundation of a trade union movement and all of that then leading to uh... To to economic uh, progress, I would just take the mo- the most immediate example of this right now is the uh, the home mortgage situation. It's it's clear that there are going to be about three million foreclosures on individual homes. Uh, people have bought these uh, adjustable rate mortgages. They are controlled by LIBOR, London Interbank Offered Rate, in many cases, and they're going to reset. In other words, they're going to go up because LIBOR has taken a leap upward. And every time the Bank of England raises the British interest rate, which they're going to do again quite soon, they, uh, they go ahead and do that. So we're going to have 3 million foreclosures. Now, if we multiply that to get the number of people, if it's three, three or four people per house, which it might easily be, we're going to have 10 million people thrown out on the street, 10 million homeless, at least temporarily homeless. And this is something uh, that we can't have. This gets us back to the winter of 1932 to 1933, with Herbert Hoover in the White House saying, I can't do anything about the Depression because it would interfere with the free market and the laws of the free market. And that, of course, is the descent into barbarism and the destruction of civilization and the rending of the human social fabric to the point where you've essentially got the law of the jungle. So the most urgent thing right now, and the only serious approach to this, is simply a federal law that bans foreclosures it says if there's a foreclosure going on we are stopping it dead in its tracks there will be no foreclosures on homes because people need a place to live there will be no foreclosures on family farms because we need to eat there will be no foreclosures on hospitals because we don't want to die there will be no foreclosures on airlines or railroads or ferries, or any other kind of infrastructure, because economic life has to go on. Goods and services have to be transported. There's all very basic New Deal stuff. Now, I have in front of me here the op-ed of yesterday in the Washington Post by William H. Gross. Now, this is a famous guy. He's the head of PIMCO, and PIMCO is the biggest bond-based mutual fund in the world, and he wants a housing rescue. And what he means by that is a bailout of the mortgage companies themselves, these places like American Home Mortgage, or you know them, right? Countrywide is on your side. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Quicken Loan, Lending Tree. When banks compete, you win. They want to bail out all of those people, and what's been done so far is a massive bailout of banks, investment banks, and mortgage companies. And the three million plus, because that figure can only rise, will be thrown out on the streets. And um, I think this is this is not the right approach.
0: I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The U.S. Banking System, Too Big to Bail Out. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: What you've simply got to do is to say, no foreclosures for the duration of this crisis. As soon as we can certify that the Depression is over, because that's what we're in now, then we'll say, okay, we can begin to re-examine these cases. Now, the, the precedent for this takes us back to the hundred days of Franklin D. Roosevelt, April thirteenth, nineteen thirty-three. Roosevelt sent to the Congress a Homeowners Loan Act, and here's what he writes: Implicit in this legislation is a declaration of national policy, and the policy is that the broad interests of this nation, with a capital N, require that special safeguards should be thrown around home ownership as a guarantee of social and economic stability and that to protect homeowners from inequitable enforced liquidation in a time of general distress is a proper concern of the government and there you have it this is all based on the clause in the constitution that everybody forgot it's called the general welfare clause and it simply means that this government is not constituted to crucify people on the, uh, on the cross of contracts or the market or, or whatever mystification people may come up with, but it's got to be based on, uh, what can we call it, equity, right, epikeia, that, that there's a common human interest in, in uh, keeping civilization Going so I would I would say the first thing we have to do immediately is to uh, is to stop all foreclosures. You probably noticed Senator Dodd of Connecticut grandstanding this past week with Bernanke and Paulson of the Treasury and talking about you know some way to soften the blow of foreclosure or Mrs. Clinton talking I think about a billion dollar fund. These are attempts to bail out the speculators themselves. Senator Schumer wants to do something to help Bear Stearns. And all I can say is there must be not one penny of public money used to prop up any of these financial bubbles, because it is impossible. We can take a look at uh, Chase Manhattan, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Citibank. Officially, in terms of what they've declared to the controller of the currency, they have $110 trillion of derivatives between them. And in reality, it's a multiple. It's probably twice that, or it may be three times that. Now, let's say it's twice. 200 trillion of derivatives. How can you bail that out? Uh, remember, the whole U.S. federal budget is now is what? Is trillion, thirteen trillion. 13 trillion? There's not enough money in the universe. Remember, the, the definition of a black hole is, is it's, it's a kind of a gravity field where no matter how much matter goes in, it'll still be a black hole in other words you can you could you could feed the whole universe into a black hole and it would simply make the black hole more uh... more powerful so the bankrupt financial institutions are indeed financial black holes and nothing can be done except to uh... put them into chapter eleven bankruptcy that's the only hope for any of them but you'll find the politicians coming forward uh... with various uh... schemes for bailing out Whereas the only thing to do is stop foreclosures and these unscrupulous mortgage bankers can eat the losses and remember when bush ran for re-election in 2004 one of his boasts was that the republican administration had increased home ownership to the highest level in world history and he went to the uh, group of uh, 8 uh, financial summit that year and uh, boasted, I guess it was in St. Petersburg last year, he boasted that the U.S. economy was the envy of the world because we had such a high level of home ownership. So really, Bush was in there cheering for people to take out uh, you know, very unsound and, and very unsafe sorts of uh, of home mortgages. So that would be a first step. Now, if, if that's clear enough, I'll go on to a second step. You want to hear a second step?
0: I do, and I'd also like you to talk about uh, this Tobin tax that you refer to. Yes, exactly.
2: Thank you so much. This is exactly what I wanted to add now. So, so far we've got hedge funds are outlawed. The second one is we've stopped all foreclosures. This has already helped the crisis immensely. In other words, we've cooled things down a great deal. Now we've got the fact that uh, some days last week, uh, when the crisis was on, the the New York stock market was having 2.5 billion shares per day uh, very very heavy volume and of course it's it's trillions and quadrillions of dollars that go through the treasury securities market the bond market the stock market futures options foreign exchange market is also huge Um, and then we've got these derivatives and i've said the derivatives is the total notional value of all derivatives in the u.s. must be something like five hundred trillion so therefore i would argue the following we should impose a Tobin tax, and this is, a, this is the name of a Yale economist who popularized this in particular for, uh, for foreign exchange markets, for currency dealing, or securities transfer tax. Now, something like this existed in the recent past. Up until, um, up until about 1970, there was a federal tax on transfer of stocks, bonds, and debt instruments. It was a small tax. I would recommend right now a one percent tax and it would simply apply to all financial turnover and it would be paid by the seller so if merrill lynch is selling you some stock the tax would be paid by merrill lynch not by you now if we just apply this to the to the uh... derivatives if we have as we seem to because it's hard to know this because not all of these are reportable that's one of the big problems we have since these basically escape regulation. Let's estimate we have $500 trillion of derivatives in the United States alone. Let's apply a 1% Tobin tax. This gives us $5 trillion of revenue, at least initially. I don't think this would go on forever, but at least in the first year, it would be $5 trillion of, uh, of revenue. Now, this would allow us to fully fund and essentially guarantee the, uh, the survival of Social Security for approximately another century. We could do Social Security, Medicare, we could restore Medicaid, we could have the S-CHIP program to provide uh, medical care for poor poor uh, children. We could fully fund WIC, women, infants, children, right? high-protein meals for expectant mothers and babies. We could fully fund Head Start. So every disadvantaged kid can get a preschool and a breakfast and uh, a good start on a career in in school we could essentially take care of unemployment insurance we could fund uh, a whole series of of improvements we could begin for example to rebuild the crumbling infrastructure of this country we've had the minnesota bridge disaster the new york city steam pipe disaster uh... we've had the water systems of this country collapsing from the levees of katrina to the uh... uh, related incidents now in in the midwest and so forth we've essentially got a country where the uh... infrastructure is collapsing the freight rail passenger rail commuter rail is collapsing the interstate highway system is collapsing the electrical grid is collapsing comes close to brownouts and blackouts uh... every month uh... in the summer and so forth and all of that has got to be rebuilt so there's there's a probably a ten trillion dollar deficit in, uh, in infrastructure, just for starters. So with $5 trillion of in- enhanced tax revenue coming from securities, uh, we could then begin to address the, uh, the real problems of this country. And this would be, I think, exemplary, because the, the question of a depression is who pays for it. A world economic depression is very expensive. Should we lower the U.S. standard of living, where people are living at about one-third of the standard of living of nineteen seventy one and should we drive that lower or should we not transfer the tax burden towards those wealthy oligarchs parasites malefactors of great wealth economic royalists, and so forth who have by and large profited from the orgy of speculation of the past thirty years or so shouldn't we shouldn't we do it that way um, we have an obscene system where if warren buffett can give 38 billion dollars to Bill Gates there's something very wrong with this system there's got to be some tax tax arrangement that can avoid putting that much power into the hands of such such a sociopathic uh, individual so the idea therefore is if the average person can pay a 5 6 7 or even 8% sales tax and sometimes even pay that on the family grocery bill can't the finance oligarchs of wall street please do their fair share with a one percent tobin tax on their colossal derivatives and hedge fund and related transactions i think that's uh, that's pretty elementary and again that would get across the idea that you wanna essentially tax bankers not people and that it, it is absolutely excluded that any further uh, measures be taken to drive down the standard of living of of the american people
0: Webster Tarpley, thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much again.
1: Yeah, yeah. What it is exactly clear.
0: There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been The U.S. Banking System: Too Big to Bail Out. Webster Tarpley is an author, economic historian, investigative journalist, and lecturer. He has just written a new article, Helicopter Ben Unleashes Hyperinflation. He is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, a collection of essays and speeches from the years 1970 to 1996, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is also author of Surviving the Cataclysm, a study of the world financial crisis, your guide through the greatest financial crisis in human history. Surviving the Cataclysm was published in 1999 and was followed immediately by the dot-com bubble and then by the housing bubble. Surviving the Cataclysm is available on disc, soon to be published in book form, and available at www.tarpley.net. That's www t dot dot Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net Guns and Butter is produced, edited, and mixed by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767 extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.
1: Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in G, And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cypher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides itself for peace release, you dig me?